Good morning. Um, you might be wondering why in the world um, a woman who can't even drive a stick shift car is so interested in aviation history. I'm really just fascinated with the people that can actually fly airplanes. I think that's the coolest thing ever. Um, but I got started uh, with the aviation history in Montana researching the World War II rather than World War I uh, training bases that were across the state in Great Falls and Lewistown, Cutbank and Glasgow where they uh, trained B-17 bombers in use with the Norton bomb site. So that was a talk of a few years ago. I realized I've done aviation history at the history conference. This will be my third time, uh, third topic. So if you've seen a couple of these slides before, I apologize. I tried to weed out the ones that I've done before. Um, but this idea of World War I and aviation history, it just goes hand in hand, of course, because flying machines and aeronautic demonstrations had taken place across Montana beginning in the late 19th century and continue to this day. Beginning with stuntmen and women like Oscar Hunt and Ruby DeVoe, inventors like Chalky Benbow and Samuel Franklin Cody, and daredevils like T.T. Maroney were employed to promote the fledgling airplane manufacturing business. Flights in Montana fascinated crowds at fairgrounds and ballparks across the state in the 1910s. The onset of World War I, however, fostered innovation and stepped up the development of flying machines and airplanes in particular to assist the war effort. Let's see if I can do this. <clears throat> Several Montanans took up the call and registered for the Army Air Corps. Pilots left Montana to train at the few airfields in the country, including North Island and San Diego Bay at Rockwell Field. And this was originally the Curtis School of Aviation, and we'll hear a lot about the Curtis Company throughout this talk. Um, and that's just an old photograph of um, Rockwell Field, which is still a major naval and air base um, in the San Diego Bay. They then engaged the enemy in concert with the French Air Corps. There they flew reconnaissance, fought one-on-one -on -one with German planes, and conducted bombing raids. Like the stunt pilots before them, their maneuvers were breathtaking, and also like those that came before, far more perished than returned home. Those that did often continued to fly, and in doing so laid the beginnings of Montana's aviation infrastructure. They established the first airfields, set up Montana's first pilot training schools, and flew for the first airmail and commercial flight companies. Their work and enthusiasm inspired the next generation of pilots to set up local airports, establish the Montana Aeronautics Commission, and oversee the development of the state's commercial and fl private flying industry and eventually to train and fly in the next world war. But let's start with the stunt men and women because they're so fun. Working for the Grace Shannon Balloon Company from 1893 through 1895, fearless Ruby DeVoe thrilled crowds with her aerial aerobatics, ascending in a hot air balloon and then parachuting back to earth. She'd do all of these wonderful flips and twirls on this trapeze attached to the parachute as she came down. Um, and she often performed uh, in a company, um, always with a, somebody named Professor, who was the man who would also be in a, in a parachute. But there was always a dog in the act, too, which I always thought was really fun. The poor thing, they'd take this dog up in the balloon, tie it to a parachute, and basically just throw it out and watch it fall down to the uh, But they didn't just throw Ruby out, she jumped. Um, and like many other aerial pioneers, her career was short-lived. After 175 successful jumps, 
she was caught in an unexpected air current during her final descent and landed against a brick chimney, breaking her back. She was just 18 years old. After she recovered, she did recover. She's one of the few I'm going to talk about that actually did recover. Um, but she set up her own homestead. She decided she's a very independent lady. She went to South Dakota, established her own homestead, uh, married the guy, Mr. Owen, next door who had his own homestead, and they eventually ended up in Missoula. Um, and she lived there from, they lived there from 1925 until her death um, in the mid-century. And she was very, very interested in uh, the early establishment of the smoke jumpers and the Forest Service and their aeronautics as well. So good old Ruby DeVoe, she was a, a plucky lady. But many early aerialists, including Ruby DeVoe Owen, possessed an adventurous spirit that often overwhelmed reason. The list of those hurt and killed is distressingly long. Nevertheless, flight remained an exciting curiosity with airplane manufacturers feeding the public interest. Sam Cody, this is Sam Cody, not Bill Cody. He actually changed his name from Cowdery to Cody and grew his hair long because he wanted to be more like Bill Cody. He actually claimed to be a relative, um, but he wasn't. <laughs> he spent a bit of time in Montana as a prospector and a cow puncher. Um, he was known as an excellent shot and worked in the Castle Mountains and the Crow Creek areas. Uh, he then established his own Wild West show in Europe, pretending to be a relative of Cody's. Uh, he parlayed his interest in kites. He was very interested in kites, and there's even a rumor that he was building flying machines in Montana while he was pro out prospecting. There's a gulch near White Sulphur Springs um, that's actually called Flying Machine Gulch. So I don't know if there's any truth to that, but it's a fun rumor to keep alive. Um, he parlayed his interest in kites uh, with, to jobs with the British military, there he became one of that country's pioneers in aviation, and his observation kites allowed for manned aerial surveillance. In 1908, he became the first man to fly in Great Britain. He was in an airplane that he had designed and built for the Army, and he flew for all of 30 seconds. <laughs> Early in 1909, the British War Office, in their wisdom, then decided that there, were no there was no future for airplanes and Cody's contract with the Army was terminated. But he had a little better idea of the future of airplanes, and he continued to work on his plane designs and give demonstrations. He was a showman, after all, and he was beloved by the French crowds. On August 7, 1913, he and his passenger at one of these shows um, died when they fell out of their aircraft and plunged 300 feet to the ground after his plane broke up during a test. So poor old Sam Cody. But he's just a national hero in Great Britain, but he does have a Montana connection. And I always have to talk about Chalky Benbow because, gosh, this guy just fascinates me. I'll, one day I'll just do a whole talk on Chalky. Um, but he was an absorkey farmer, and he er entered his dirigible, the Montana Meteor, in the aerial races at the St. Louis Exposition Fair uh, in October of 1904, and he hoped to win the $100,000 prize. So he built this with financing out of uh, Red Lodge, actually, and he, had, and he shipped this whole thing to St. Louis. And his trial runs were successful, but the day that the final races were held, the wind rose during the flight, and the meteor got caught in a number of wires and uh, telephone lines, and he was disqualified from the race. The first recorded flight of an airplane in Montana took place at the Montana State Fairgrounds here in Helena, 
on September 26, 1910. Pilot Bud Mars made two successful flights that day in his Curtis airplane named the Skylark. Mars was not from Montana. He was employed by the Curtis Air Company to promote aviation and was known as the Curtis Daredevil. On September 30th, 1911, Cromwell Dixon made his famous flight across the Continental Divide between the Helena Fairgrounds and Blossburg. Another Curtis Exhibition Company pilot, he received his pilot's license just a month before he crossed the Divide and at 19 had become the youngest pilot in the, licensed in the whole world. His mother didn't want him to get his pilot's license and he had to wait until he was 19 to do it. Um, sadly, just a few days later, on October 2nd, 1911, while performing his usual aerial stunts at the Spokane Fair, Cromwell's biplane caught a strong, unexpected updraft, and he plunged toward the ground and crashed and was crushed under the plane's heavy engine, which, of course, the moral of the story is listen to your mother and don't become a pilot. <laughs> Another famous aviator came to the Helena Fairgrounds in September 1913. Young Catherine Stimson, the flying schoolgirl, became the first to deliver airmail in Montana, flying it between the fairgrounds and the downtown post office. And of course, she couldn't land at the post office, so her delivery of the airmail meant she just dropped the bag from the airplane and it landed on the roof of the post office downtown. She actually had to be designated an official postmaster in order to promote this, this particular feat. But as these stories indicate, the few planes that took off and landed in Helena did so at the fairgrounds, where the racetrack provided a long, well-packed dirt runway. Montana had its own Curtis exhibition pilots. Tara T. Moroni lived in Butte, Great Falls, and Helena. In 1910, he constructed an airplane under a tent at the corner of Central and Ninth in Great Falls. Um, um, none of those houses are still standing, but it's very close, um, if you've been up there, to... Uh, it's actually the lot where the Masonic Hall is in, Great Fall, in downtown Great Falls now. Um, but then it was just an open lot, and he built this little tent, and everybody was very curious about what he was doing in there. Um, and one day he rolled out this wonderful monstrosity. Found this picture just recently. It was just posted on a great website called Helena As She Was. Um, of him, of the first days he had his uh, plane put together. Um, so there are several good photographs of, of him in his early years. Uh, he attended the Curtis Flight School and received his license in 1912. He was the first Montana pilot to do so and the 106th in the country. Of his class of 13 potential pilots in San Diego, seven had died within a year and four others had quit aviation. Only two went on to be pilots. And when he returned, Moroni had a Curtis plane and signed on with the newly formed Montana Airplane and Exhibition Company out of Butte. They even had a more impressive Curtis plane to fly, one that had a 75 horsepower engine, and later they actually converted it to a hydroplane and he did one of the first flights across Flathead Lake. Um, and they needed the more powerful engine, especially around Butte, um, because the altitude requires the, a much more powerful engine to get the, the lift you need to uh, actually fly in an airplane uh, in Montana. So it's no easy feat to do so. Moroni not only flew exhibitions across the state and in the Northwest, but it was also in charge of the flight school at Butte. As early as 1913, Moroni saw the potential of airplanes in warfare and practiced while flying dropping bombs out of his airplane, 
onto targets. He left Butte a year, that year to go on to do exhibitions as far away as Louisiana, and he moved to Seattle in 1914, where he reportedly gave Bill Boeing his very first airplane ride. Moroni probably didn't volunteer to his fans that he had left his wife and four children in Montana for a teenage girl named Rudy Rutledge, who was on the tour with him in Seattle. Then he joined the Navy as a trainer. And this photo, photo down here of Moroni, she's with suffragette Lucy Burns, and they would fly over the city of Seattle and drop leaflets, pro-suffrage leaflets from the air. During World War I, Moroni enlisted in the Army Air Corps and served as a flight instructor in Lake Charles, Louisiana for the duration of the war. And as with many former service pilots, Moroni wanted to continue his aviation career after the war, but the market was flooded. He returned west, and though 1919 marked the beginnings of the air expansion across the country, Moroni had trouble finding work. He worked on and off as a pilot, but remarried and owned a resort in California. He worked as a cabinet maker and a mechanic in Kansas, and occasionally he would give um, demonstrations and flights uh, in local airports. He was doing that in 1929 when he was hit in the head by an airplane propeller and died. Every, I promise a few of these people didn't die in horrible ways, um, but, but a lot of them did. Another Montanan who went on to have an important World War I flying career was Cliff Proger from Fife, Montana. Cliff Proger was the son of J.H. Proger, who ran the grain elevator at Fife, Montana for years and years. And I love, I just love grain elevators too. They're one of my also great fascinations. And these two are still standing. They're just about all that's left in Fife. But if you drive between Great Falls as you're making your way towards Belt, if you look on the north side of the highway, you can still see those elevators standing. Um, but Cliff Proger uh, attended schools in Great Falls. And at the age of 24, he went to New York, where he learned to fly at the school, the Beatty Aviation Company in Hempstead, Long Island. When Project received his pilot's license in 1912, the Beatty School kept him on as a flight instructor. And then in 1915, he went to England, where he became a test pilot for the Hadley Page Company, Blackburn Airplane and Motor Companies, and the Royal Naval Air Service. He tested some 200 different kinds of aircraft for the British government, and was credited at the close of World War I as having more flight time than any other pilot in the British Air Service. Proger received worldwide attention in 1919 by flying a new Hadley Page bomber with a record load of 40 passengers and a total gross weight of 14 tons or 28,000 pounds. So, and there he's in the middle. Do I have a pointer? Now I'm afraid to push any of these buttons. He's in the very center of that. These were some of his passengers on an earlier flight. And he's the very small man in the dead center that looks very, very nervous. And he was very, very nervous about transporting all of these folks. Um, Project returned to the United States in 1919. He visited Great Falls in October and then went to California, where he demonstrated a British-made airplane to prospective customers in the San Francisco area. Prodger was killed, sorry, again, um, Sunday, August 22, 1920, at Redwood City while demonstrating a British airplane at the Varney Aviation School, and two employees of the school were killed with him. Newspaper paper accounts of Prodger's accomplishments mention that he had between four and 8,000 hours of flying time, which is incredible, that he was 32 years of age at the time he was killed. 
He was born, uh, buried in Los Angeles where his wife and infant child had recently moved from Montana. Forrest Longway was raised in Great Falls where his father was a prominent physician and surgeon recognized for his early research in Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Forrest attended grade in high school in Great Falls and was studying at UM when the, university, uh, when the US entered World War I. And he left the university to enlist in the Air Corps, received his ground school training at Berkeley, California, and then was assigned to Rockwell Field, that uh, airbase we saw a picture of in San Diego, for flight uh, training. And he trained on a Curtis Jenny uh, JN4 airplane. Arriving overseas, Lieutenant Longway trained on French bombers. The Breguet bomber is known for being the first mass-produced aircraft to use large amounts of metal rather than wood in its structure. This made it lighter than one cons uh, constructed of wood and made it fast and relatively agile for its size, and they were able to outrun many of the fighters of its day. The Breguet 14 is often considered to have been one of the best warcraft aircraft uh, of the war. When interviewed about his combat experience, he stated that of the original 14 pilots in his unit completing flight instruction at Rockwell Field, only five got to the front. One became a German prisoner, one was killed in combat, but nine were killed in accidents relating to just training on the aircraft and the operations other than combat. So only three survived the war. Longway executed several bombing missions and received the French uh, Croix de Guerre and additional citations. After being wounded, he returned to Great Falls about June 20th, 1919, and again became a civilian. And he lived on a ranch near Belt at first, but wanted to continue flying. And he did barnstorming in Montana, later moved around the country working as a universe, uh, U.S. Department of Commerce airplane inspector. He enlisted again in World War II and served as a safety officer for the duration of the war. So really impressive guy. Um, so I'll throw this question out. So who do you think made the first non-stop trip across the Atlantic? Who knows? People are saying Lindbergh. A lot of people say Lindbergh. He wasn't. He was the first solo. But uh, two folks made it before he did. <clears throat> and Lindbergh's flight was in 1927. But on June 15, 1919, British aviators John Alcock and Arthur Brown flew from Newfoundland to Ireland in a harrowing flight that lasted 16 hours. Things like the engines froze, so they had to climb out onto the front of their airplane and try and warm up the engine to restart it. They hit fog and had to go really, really low to get beneath the clouds and realize they were about to hit the ocean and had to pull out of a spin. And it was a harrowing, harrowing flight. They were freezing cold by the time they did it. and. Um, they did finally land in Ireland. They flew a Vickers Vimy bomber, which had been developed for World War I, but not completed in time to be used in combat. In 1919, the war was over, but the airplane development was still one of the Allies' priorities. Um, so this plane made it actually all the way from Newfoundland to Ireland uh, in a nonstop flight for 16 hours, and they thought they'd had this nice level surface to land on, and it turned out to be a swampy bog. So when they landed, of course, the wheels hit the ground and sunk right into the earth, and that's their beautiful landing in Ireland. But they did survive. Yay, they didn't die, so that's a good thing. 
So one of the prototype uh, aircraft that they were showing off, the U.S. was showing off uh, after 1919 and they were testing, was the Martin MB-1 bomber. And it was large enough to hold a crew of three. This is the bomber, right, in 1919. It had three people, a pilot, a bombardier, and a gunner. Um, and there's a picture of the M1 right up there. And so three people would stuff into that uh, airplane, and the bomber essentially, the bombardier, wasn't just pulling a lever, he was lifting the bomb, lighting it, and throwing it out the side of, <laughs> of, the, of the airplane. <laughs> Between June and November of 1919, the Army Air Service flew a crew um, and a Martin M MB-1 bomber around the rim of the United States, stopping at multiple landing fields along the way, not only to test the plane and engines, but also to arouse interest in aviation in general and bolster recruitments to the Army Air Service, chart routes, and locate landing fields. They arrived in Miles City, Montana, to much, much fan fanfare. 19-year-old Frank Wiley was in awe, and that appearance inspired him to take up aviation as a career. And Wiley literally wrote the book on Montana aviation history. He lived it, he experienced it, and his book is called Montana in the Sky, and the majority of the information that I have for this talk came from his research, his book, and he donated all of that research to the Montana Historical Society. You know, there are biographies of, of dozens and dozens of early pilots in Montana at the Historical Society. I'm only touching on a few of them um, in this talk, but definitely worth going through all of those records. One day I'll go through all of those records and have more information. But interestingly enough, Miles City became a center of aviation in the early 1920s. The Aero Miles City Club included several enthusiasts and former military pilots. They too used the fairgrounds as a base of operation. In addition to the racetrack, another runway of packed earth was parallel to the track there at the fairgrounds. Despite it being an early aviation center, Miles City didn't build their full airport until 1948. And it's located north of the river in an area called Lansing Flat. And um, although it wasn't really where they took off and flew all the time, it was a nice flat open surface above uh, uh, Miles City. And that's where they practiced all their barnstorming trips, all of their loop-de-loops and uh, other exciting ventures in the air. In fact, many um, Bar World War I pilots across the country made their living barnstorming at first using Army surplus planes. After the war, the Army found itself with thousands of planes and sold them to pilots across the country for relatively little money. You could purchase a plane and have it shipped to you, often brand new in the box, never used, um, for $300. Some are still brand new in the crate. One of the most important airport planes of the war never saw combat. The training plane that Montana pilots like Earl Vance was using was that Curtis JN-4, properly known as the Jenny. It was a rudimentary plane even then, with one seat for a student and another for the instructor. It had two fixed wheels and a wooden tail skid, fitted with a 90-horsepower Curtis OX-5 V8 engine. I sound like I know what I'm talking about, right? That sounds really impressive. <laughs> The biplane could hit 75 miles per hour and fly as high as 11,000 feet. It had a wingspan of 43 feet and weighed less than a ton fully loaded and could stay airborne for just over two hours. And I just wanted to include picture, this picture of this Jenny to give you an idea of how fragile these planes actually were. Um, it's all wood frame construction. 
very, very thin pieces of wood held together with wire and then covered with linen that they would um, dope with a clear coat to make them waterproof. Thousands of pilots learned to fly in a jetty, including Amelia Earhart. Um, all told, 7,000 jetties were built. More than 3,000 of them were this, J, with this model, the 4D, and um, they were produced during the 12 months before the end of the war. So they were building all of these airplanes, and then the war ended, and then they had this huge surplus of airplanes. Aero Mile City Club founders Earl Vance, Art Stevenson, and Bill Ferguson were aviation pioneers in Montana. Born in Indiana in 1896, Earl Vance studied at the Aberdeen Business School, and when he graduated in 1916, uh, almost immediately the next year, he entered the Army Signal Corps and enrolled in flight training school at Kelly Field in Texas. He spent his Army career there as a flight instructor, and when he came back to Montana, he engaged in a variety of flying occupations, including barnstorming, he ran his own flying service, and he worked as a commercial pilot at National Park Airways, um, and did aerial mapping for the U.S. government. Vance arrived in Miles City in 1920, and he paid for his flying by teaming up with a local veterinarian, um, and he ferried him to his ranching clients all around the community. He gave rides to ranchers and others who opted to hire Vance when they needed to travel quickly. And while repairing his Jenny airplane in Sydney, he made and married uh, Esther Combs, and they took their honeymoon tour, making it all the way to Florida and paying for it along the way because they would stop and they would let people have rides in their airplane and they would pay them and then they'd have enough money to get to the next spot. <laughs> Four minutes, oh no, okay. So um, very quickly, Esther Vance, I've talked about her before. She became, she was the first, Montana's first female commercial pilot. And um, boy, she's just a really interesting character and one day I will do an entire book about Esther Vance. But I'm out of time, so here we go. They located in uh, Great Falls in 1926 and they had a hangar north of the city, um, up above Black Eagle. And he developed his uh, expanding business with uh, charter and taxi work and really became very, very important um, to the general aviation community. In 1932, he purchased an auto gyro, which was an early helicopter, and he used to fly around the city with a big banner, you know, like when you go to the shore and there's a big banner behind the airplanes. Um, he did it in his really funny looking helicopter thing, advertising Great Falls beer. So I knew I liked him. Esther Vance actually ended up after um, uh, Earl passed away. He died of a heart attack while playing badminton in Salt Lake City. Um, she moved back to Missoula, Montana, where she worked in the registrar's office. And a lot of people who went to the university remember her as working in that registrar's office for decades and decades. Bill Ferguson also began his Montana aviation career in, in Miles City. He was a native of the Midwest, uh, but he came to Montana in the early 1920s tends to work for the Forest Service. He was a newspaper editor and basically a just big booster. Ended up working in Miles City as a, on the newspaper there as well. And he uh, was a founder of the Miles City Club, Arrows Club, barnstormed with another Army Air Force veteran, Jack Hesser out of Butte. Um, and he moved to Helena where he was active in local business promotion and continued flying and working with National Park to Airways. He also worked with Art Stevenson, another veteran pilot, 
Uh, and together they started Helena's first flying school, which was located for a brief time where the golf course is now. And you can imagine the conflict between airplanes trying to land on fairways and people trying to play golf. It only lasted a few months. It was only 1926. By 1927, they're like, this is not good. Um, <laughs> he was pretty funny. During the 1920s and early 1930s, Great Falls boasted several flying operations. In addition to the Vance Place, there was Gore Field, which is now the Great Falls International Airport, um, named after the farmer, Mr. Gore, not anybody uh, else that we know. Uh, Great Falls was the northern terminus for National Park's Airways, Montana's first regularly scheduled commercial line. The gentlemen we've talked about, Steve Stevenson, Earl Vance, Bill Ferguson, as well as Frank Wiley and Burt Mooney, all were their first pilots. Established in 1928, the service flew between Salt Lake and Great Falls with its headquarters in Butte. They've held the post office first airmail contract and offered passenger service and freight. And they merged with Western Airlines in 1937, which in turn uh, merged with Delta 50 years later. Helena was the on the National Parks Airways route, forsaking the fairgrounds. Um, here's the picture of the, the airport at the municipal golf course. And I'll tell one thing. There's a quote about the golfers. Many golfers were not too air-minded, yet they were rightfully conscious of an airplane competing for them for use of fairways and even the greens. I remember distinctly one irate golfer who was very capably defending himself by throwing his irons at my airplane as I buzzed him to get off the fairway so it could land. <laughs> In September 1927, Charles Lindbergh landed the Spirit of St. Louis at the airfield. Um, and then went on without his plane to the state fairgrounds to a big giant parade. Um, and then our municipal airport was established in 1928, where it is now. And there's pictures of the old airport terminal, which is just actually turned, uh, torn down just a few years ago in 2006. The first accredited aeronautics school in the nation began in Helena in 1931 under um, the tutelage of R.E. Morrison, Red Morrison, and Bill Farner, who are very well-known pilots and uh, instructors here in Helena. Burt Walker was born in Baldwin, Wisconsin, but he ended up in Lewistown. Uh, he, too, trained as an Army pilot at Kelly Field in Texas and um, came back to Lewistown, where he established the airport there. Um, the original airport was kind of subsumed in World War II by the B-17 training schools and, and Army airfield that was established there. And this um, farthest right building is the only hangar left from the original uh, airport out there at Lewistown. And I know I'm running out of time, so I'll just keep going. The first person to fly in Missoula was uh, not a Montanan. He was Eugene Ely, and he flew out at the um, Fort Missoula. Uh, big open air spaces. He, the baseball diamond out there served nicely as a as a landing field, um, and then he rolled his airport. You can see the the officers row there, facing the the landing of the airplane. But Missoula's airport, you know where the Missoula's airport originally was. Anyone? Um, you know where Sentinel High School is, right next to the fairgrounds. That was originally the airport. Um, actually, the very very first landing fields were even closer in where the golf course is at University of Montana, golf and aviation seem to seem to like each other, or dislike each other, I should say, quite a bit. Um, and I just love this picture of um, Hale Field there in uh, Missoula. 
And I also really miss dressing up to go on an airplane ride. Don't they look fabulous? This is just a great advertisement um, taken at Hale Field in Missoula. So back to World War I, because my time is short, I can't talk about each of these veteran pilots from Montana or their flying careers. Uh, Frank Wiley's list in his book, Montana in the Sky, counts 80 Montanans who served in the Army Air Corps during World War I. And I'm sorry, I don't know how many survived the war. But a few like Jack Hessner of Whitehall and Howard Johnson of Butte continued to be aviation enthusiasts and pioneers in the state when they returned after the war. Others, like the Riddick brothers of Lewistown and Forest Longway of Great Falls, went on to have important aviation careers elsewhere. Several veterans in Montana after the war, including Earl Vance and Steve Stevenson, stayed here to establish our first flight schools, exhibition companies, and airports. As World War II dawned, Montana aviators served again, most often as instructors. Airfields they helped establish became training centers, flight instruction in the case of Great Falls, their legacy lives on, and our airports are named for them, and we even host air shows and military exhibitions today. And that's pretty close to a half an hour. Thanks.